0: Welcome to In Early, the crypto podcast, where I speak to those at the forefront of the digital asset space, telling real life stories, discussing the growth and growing pains of the industry and exploring how blockchain technology has made an impact on people's lives. My name is Matt Green and I'm the blockchain litigation lead at Shoesmiths. This episode features Carmel King, a director at Grand Thornton UK LLP, where we find out how the recovery of land in Panama and mines in Zambia led to the development of a specialized digital asset recovery practice, how Carmel's team trace crypto funds on a blockchain and identify fraudsters using specialist intelligence, how they enforce orders around the world and realize assets, the role of funding litigation and class actions, what practitioners should look out for, as well as discussing a real test case involving an inside job, the role of insolvency proceedings, and how education is fundamental in helping the industry grow in confidence. This week we have Carmel King, who's a director at Grant Thornton UK LLP in the insolvency and asset recovery team. Hello.
1: Hi Matt, thanks for having me. How are we doing? Good, really good.
0: We're trying to figure out between us how we met. Do we remember between us?
1: I think it might have been Dara Connell who introduced us.
0: Possibly. We had a really nice dinner. I remember that. I think we had a nice dinner. And also, I think in the solar system of good people in this space, we were just orbiting each other and eventually came together. (laughs) So, I mean, you work for uh, uh, Grant Thornton and you're in the asset recovery team and you're involved in sort of blockchain and crypto. How did you... Get into this world.
1: Well, I'm, I'm not a natural blockchain and crypto person, I would say. I've not been doing this for, for 10 years, and I certainly didn't read Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper when it first came out. Um, you didn't? I didn't, but now I'm all over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm wow. a massive crypto nerd now, I have to say it. Yeah. Um, it all started a little over two years ago. So, so my team... Across the UK is about 150 people. We're 200 people worldwide. And and what we do is fraud investigation and asset recovery. So whenever there's been any kind of financial crime, corruption, we look at cartels, we look at tax fraud, we look at, you know, we do all kinds of things. And there are all kinds of assets that we've recovered. I've recovered land in Panama. We've looked at mines in Zambia. We've unraveled trusts in offshore jurisdictions. And that's what we do as a matter of course. Right. So two years ago, my head of corporate intelligence, my head of client development and myself, we just realized we had an absolute blind spot when it came to crypto and digital assets. Right. So any case that came to us, we were the ones saying, like like so many people in the industry are now, oh, we don't do crypto. And that's just ridiculous because there's nothing that we don't do and we can't do. And, And we put a team together. We bolted on the blockchain analytics capability to our corporate intelligence team and off we went really
0: right so it it used to be sort of grabbing land in different jurisdictions and assets and then this was just the next obvious asset where there was a blind spot yeah everyone sort of retrained or or developed themselves and you know we work together so i know that you're great at what you do but i guess that you've built that team out now to a point where you're a leader
1: well, we're we. I, I'm I'm the notional head because I'm the one that keeps sticking at the conferences and on the speaking <laughs> yeah. slots and everything like that. It's very much a team effort, but we're and we're and we're international. You know, we we have weekly calls with guys from the U.S. from the offshore jurisdictions, and they're all part of the same team because obviously this is not a UK issue, is it? It's completely borderless in, in many ways.
0: Yeah. No. I, uh, absolutely. I mean, some of the things that I have to deal with is jurisdiction, and we'll come on to that yeah. later, but. <laughs> I mean you call yourself and you're probably downplaying yourself quite a lot a glorified accountant um working on recovering crypto assets can you tell everyone the role that you play broadly just sort of an overview and we'll get to the detail maybe a bit later in recovering crypto assets,
1: I I can. Although I, I'm an actual accountant, I will say I'm not even a glorified accountant. <laughs> in in the the dark history of time, I did qualify
0: as an accountant. Well, which you're doing some more courses now. We're right? not talking
1: about okay. that. Yeah, we'll okay, <laughs> we're definitely not talking about that today. But what what I do and what my team does in a nutshell is is everything except for what you do, Matt. Everything except for the legal. So so if someone comes to us and they've um, lost digital assets, called it through an investment scam or or through some kind of you know, something that's gone wrong or our company is insolvent and it had assets in that space. We'll pull on the thread. We'll do the blockchain analytics, find out where the digital assets have gone. We'll apply some corporate intelligence all around it. So, you know, if the victim is getting huge pressure through WhatsApp messages, we'll see if we can find something using that number or, uh, across the web, using OSENT tech and and find out if there are related scams or anything like that. So we try and put some context together. We pass it over to you, the law talking guy who who brings it and in your in your average, you know, I'm calling them average, but you were obviously the trailblazer when it comes to AA versus persons unknown and everything like that. If you're looking at disclosure orders and freezing orders and all of that kind of thing, we'll look to come back in on the asset recovery side. So if the assets can't be easily obtained, we'll look at taking a statutory appointment and and basically, you know, turning over everything until we get the assets back and, and hand them back to the victims.
0: Right. So you're sort of at the start of it mm-hmm. and then you hand it over to the lawyers and we do all the lawyery bit where yeah. we freeze the assets and, and, and Negotiate, And then when it's time to get those assets back and realize them, that's when you sort of come back in.
1: Yes, so yeah. you're the
0: bread of the sandwich and we're definitely whatever the meat is in the middle.
1: Yeah. And, and, and when we don't, we, we have third parties that do custodianship and everything like that, but we, we're the ones who, have, who provide the gateway or have the, the statutory powers to actually recover the assets if it needs to be done in that kind of way.
0: Okay. So it's almost like full service of the asset recovery process, less the legal.
1: Yeah. Cradle to grave plus Matt. <laughs>
0: that's, <laughs> that
1: that's
0: kind of you to say. <laughs> So, I mean, you're everywhere. You've been quoted in the Financial Times. We've written together in the blockchain industry review. Um, we've spoken at conferences. You're usually at conferences when, whenever I call you and you normally um, are too busy to take my call, which is completely fair <laughs> enough. Um, there's clearly a huge effort made by you and those already in the industry uh, trying to inform people about blockchain, crypto assets and recovery. A lot of people don't know that you can recover crypto assets. So what are the biggest obstacles in people's understanding of this industry? And why are people reluctant if they are?
1: I think that there's very much the idea that digital assets are just over here somewhere. And, and I say this all the time, and I said it at a conference yesterday, because I'm technically supposed to be at a conference right now. Indeed. <laughs> um, you know, people think that assets are, or digital assets are over here in the corner somewhere. They're for, for the tech nerds to play with, and I don't know anything about it. And I don't understand it, so I'm going to put my head in the sand. Mm. And, and that's a really worrying position. The other thing that, that people are telling me when I'm out at these conferences presenting with you or speaking to journalists or that kind of thing is they're saying, I'm not seeing it. We don't see it. Everyone's talking about crypto assets. Every conference has a token crypto session in it. Mm, asset mm. recovery ones. Now there are conferences entirely dedicated to crypto investigation asset recovery, which is the the one where we spoke together recently. Um, but people are saying I'm not seeing it. And and my answer to that is you're just you're not looking because if you've got, you know, insolvency practitioners taking appointments over bankrupts, you cannot tell me that there's not been no bankruptcy this year where the guy or woman has not had crypto assets. You just can't tell me. And you're just not, you know, looking at the bank statement analysis, you're yeah. not looking at their phones to see where they're logging into apps. You're just not looking at it properly. Um, so so it is this idea that it's scary, I don't understand it. And and the thing that you know well, we, we, we've been banging the drum for the last two years to say it's just another asset. Yeah. I don't know anything about fine art but I can still recover fine art because I, you know, I know a guy that can deal with it. And that's how people in my industry work. You don't have to be an expert at everything. You just have to know that you can pick up the phone to the experts.
0: What does Aidan always say? Aidan Larkin at Asset Reality, who who uh, we know as well, he always says, you know, to, to, to sell a car, I don't need to know the history of Ford. And that's exactly right, right? Yeah, I heard he uses, that for about the sixth time. He, yeah, this- he uses that line a lot, but it's true. <laughs> and people won't, people hopefully listening won't have heard that. Um, but it, it does resonate, you know, as a lawyer, as, as an accountant, insolvency practitioner, whatever it is, we don't need to know necessarily the technicals to look underneath the hood. We just need to know how to deal with these assets. Um, so when you say that people haven't looked properly or haven't seen any results, is that because they say they haven't seen any judgments or is that because they just haven't seen any recoveries? I mean, what's your feeling on that?
1: I think it's because they're, they're not looking or they're in the same position as we were two years ago and they said, oh, we don't do that. Right. And and the simple fact is that because digital assets are increasingly mainstream and, and you know, fair enough, the investment banks have made a huge push into it. But the high street banks are, are starting to follow now. Mm. Um, so corporates are starting to get into it, which means everything follows. There, there's a lag six months a year, maybe even two years, particularly with the pandemic and everything. Um, people are saying i'm not seeing it in my investigation cases crypto companies aren't coming to me with restructuring issues or insolvency issues and um, the frauds i'm seeing don't involve digital assets so i don't need to worry about it
0: cuz they don't it- know where to look right they might see a, they might see a, an alphanumeric code and just think that that's a lot of nonsense but actually it might be an address yeah. or, or or you know they might see a, a usb stick and actually it's a, it's a, it's a cold wallet but they have no idea
1: and, and the, there's huge risk attached to that as well. And I know I'm speaking just about an, an insolvency situation here, but it is a fraud investigation and asset recovery context where if you've got someone and they have dissipated and obfuscated assets using the blockchain, and you and I both know it's the stupidest way to do it, yeah. but it happens. 100%. <laughs> and if they do it, the, the responsibility of, of a trustee and bankruptcy or liquidator is to get in the assets for the benefit of the, for the estate, for the benefit of the creditors. And the creditors are going to be very sophisticated most of the time in this space. They know what they're talking about and they're very convinced that the liquidator does not know what he's talking about.
0: Mm. And they'd be very
1: unhappy if no efforts have been made whatsoever to get in the digital assets. And you've got issues then with your regulator, with your RPB, and and you're just not doing your duty. So I think it's it's potentially a car crash waiting to happen and, and people in my space really need to, to educate themselves. And not in a scary way. It's literally just accept that, this is something that I need to add to my checklist. Yeah, It's someone I need to have on the phone. I need to know that this is a potential area of investigation.
0: Well, look, it's a brand new asset class, right? And there are people who provide decent training sessions. I've been on some, they've been really, really useful just to make sure people understand what things look like. Yeah. I also think going back to a point about, you know, not seeing any recoveries from your perspective, obviously people aren't to some extent educated to understand that there are clues. Mm. But from a legal perspective, a lot of these judgments that come out are... are private. yeah. So, you know, you get a lot of recoveries and the order or the judgment is made in private and then they never really come out. So from a legal perspective, people are saying, well, there's a handful of judgments, yeah. but not too many. It's like, well, there's a lot going on in the background mm-hmm. and for good reason, you're not seeing it.
1: Yeah. And that's before you even talk about disputes and, and that exactly. as well, which is huge, absolutely huge.
0: So what can we be doing more to teach and inform people?
1: Well, I, I think that, um, it, the, the concept of it being just another asset is, is absolutely key. Um, and, and it's not easy, but none of these things are. And if I go back to fine art, fine art's not easy. You're not just yeah. going to wang that in your storeroom, are you? You know, because it had be covered in mold within three weeks <laughs> exactly. and then you're in trouble. Yeah. So, so it's not easy, but, but the basic things, you know, it is literally if it's an insolvency appointment or if it's a fraud investigation, it's how do you identify it, familiarize yourself with the ways. And, and, and these basic things, you know, who to contact, you're not looking at the banks, but who are the exchanges? Who are the main ones? Mm. How how do you deal with smart contracts, DeFi, when there might be no human behind it? Do you know someone who can tell you what the smart contracts say? Where to put the digital assets if you come across it? You you, you know, this is something that I spoke about at a conference and I got completely sidetracked on it because <laughs> I heard stories about people going <laughs> to exchanges and, and opening accounts with all of the different exchanges so that they could keep any digital assets there. At the exact time that all of these exchanges were going under and suffering liquidity problems. And it's kind of, that's the worst place where you could put it. You have the risks of hacking and all of that kind of thing. So do you know anyone who can provide you with insured custodianship services? How do you manage your assets? And again, going back to an insolvency situation, we have a couple of programs that we use to manage entire cases, to have the assets, details of creditors, all of that kind of thing. They do not deal with digital assets at all whatsoever, and they're not likely to. So, So do you know... Of a service where you can record the assets that you've gotten in when they're digital assets. How do you distri- distribute them? Is it going to be in specie like Mt. Gox is doing at the moment, mm-hmm. um, or are you going to be cashing out? And that's before you even get to the the issues of the international aspects of the pseudo anonymity if you're looking at a recovery action. But these are really, really basic things to consider, and you can't do it on the hoof because you can't do it without some kind of planning in advance. Because if you do it in panic, then there's going to be there're going to be problems.
0: But it's almost like. I suppose it, it will be useful for the industry to have a checklist of things that you yeah. need to look for. Yeah, I, I'm preparing one for the insolvency team where I am, and I'm I'm not an insolvency lawyer at all. I'll
1: give you ours. You can have it. <laughs> yeah. but I've already given it to
0: quite a few. Oh, have you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. no. One thing that I think is important is that you know a lot of the f- people when they're looking to see if there are are digital assets is understanding you know has a payment been made to a bank mm-hmm. or a company that you don't recognize. One of the things was, I've been pursuing certain assets in litigation is the exchange names, i.e. people who have paid exchanges, aren't necessarily the company that they're registered as. So a good example of that is, you know, people making payments to Kraken, uh, they are called payward. So people might not see that Mm -hmm, and they may mm -hmm. not recognize that that's an exchange. So I think between ourselves and the rest of the industry, we need to be pushing out Um, sort of clues as to where to look to obtain digital assets. I
1: think so. And the the devil's in the detail as well. We had a case and it wasn't related to digital assets at all. But um, we managed to find an entire property by just doing a bank statement analysis, property that hadn't been disclosed that, you know, the guy thought he'd get away without telling us about it. Um, And it was very, very small payments going out paying the council tax or paying, you know, some kind of insurance premium or something like that. And normally, if you're doing an analysis, you might have some kind of threshold and you'll investigate everything over X. But actually it does count to look at the detail because if you've got little payments going out to payward over a period of years, then that's a whole space right there. And that's someone that you can approach and that's someone that you can ask for KYC information. You can mm-hmm. get the wallet details, you can find out what's there and, and you're in it. That's the thread that you want to pull. It's you know,
0: Well, I mean, it's especially sort of talking about recurring. I mean, I have this, I have a an account with an exchange and they just take out the same amount of money each month. Mm-hmm. So it's a small amount and maybe someone looking at a bank statement would just think that that is, I don't know, a... a- Ins- yeah, or a or standing order wherever it may be, and actually yeah. to some extent it is. But it's, it's definitely worth sort of understanding when fiat is being paid out from a bank account, who it's going to, and doing yeah. a little bit of investigation. And
1: there, there are so many other things as well, and we could do a whole podcast on things to look out for on day one. And um, you know, uh, and and if you get you know a laptop or a mobile phone the, you know, the the exchange app might be deleted off of it. Yeah. But have they been using Google to log in, their Google account to log into everything, in which case there's yeah. a whole record of all of those things where you're too lazy to remember your password and you <laughs> yeah, just log yeah. in with Google. Yeah. And it's right there. You know, there are shopping lists on the fridge, you know, and uh, all of those kinds of things are, are indicators and there, there are plenty of things to look out for.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it, it's worth sort of going over now a little bit more detail about what it is that that you you sort of do. I mean, what are the ways in which you recover assets? Tell me about the process and where you come in. Like if I had an order as a lawyer requiring a person's unknown uh, to hand over 100 Bitcoin, like I give it to you, how does it work? And I say person's unknown, just to clarify. I may have an order saying that, Uh, 100 bitcoin is at a certain address and Mm -hmm. i don't know who they are um, as individuals yet Um, i may go to a court and uh, require that court to provide some disc uh, sorry i may go to a court sorry and ask an exchange to provide that information um so that i understand who i'm suing so on that basis i have an order i give it to carmel what happens well, that's,
1: that's a fairly straightforward in as much as, you know, these cases are not straightforward because why would anyone pay us to do them otherwise? But it's a fairly straightforward case study, you know, um, uh, as insolvency practitioners or taking a statutory appointment like a receivership, we can seize, we can investigate, we can recover, we can use statutory powers to demand information from third parties. And those would be, you know, directors of companies or, you know, professional advisors. We can pick up files across the board. They're, they're huge disclosure capabilities. You have if you've mm. got a statutory appointment over an individual or an entity. Um, when it comes to enforcement, if it's persons unknown, I'm guessing you know the judgment's in default. And and essentially what we can do, and we have one at the moment going on, is um, we we take a receivership appointment, mm-hmm. and essentially we act as a gateway. And and it's not an adversarial appointment against an exchange. Yeah, there are funds being that you've frozen with exchange A that the individual who, you know, who holds that account is not entitled to. Um, It doesn't matter who person's unknown is. You may or may not have unmasked them. But what the exchange needs is essentially the order of the court giving them the extra comfort that they've been instructed to pay those assets over to us or to transfer those assets over to us. So in that situation, we act as a gateway. In other situations, we, we've had different, uh, different kinds of enforcements. So, so ones where there have been judgments obtained against people who are known due to disputes or, or whatever mm. it has uh, happens to have been and where the claimants are aware that those targets have digital assets, um, uh, then we can come in and take a bankruptcy appointment over those individuals. And those are much more complicated in that you have to go through the whole process, which will obviously be that the the target will try to avoid it at all costs, which is Mm. good because that can result in a payout before we ever have to get involved. It's good leverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a good way to to put the pressure on. But if we get appointed, all of their assets and their property vests in us. Right. Um, so what would follow if I'm involved and there's a fraud aspect to it or some kind of dispute aspect to it is an investigation on our part. And we would have to gather in all of their assets and investigate and unravel trusts and do all of the kinds of things that you have to do. Yeah. But essentially we stand in their shoes and we can get in all of their property and pay over in, in satisfaction
0: of that judgment. Can this be against people who are outside England and Wales?
1: Um, it depends. And obviously, I'm not the lawyer, but I've just given a, a lawyerly answer. <laughs> you know, it really does depend. We we have a few matters uh, that we're discussing at the moment, and the judgments have been obtained okay. outside the UK. And that's not so much a problem, particularly when there's no uh, right to appeal or, or anything like that. Um, in the, you can take appointments over individuals, they have to have their center of main interest in the UK or in England right. and Wales. However, we work entirely internationally. So one of the receiverships that I, I briefly kind of alluded to is out of Cayman. And one of my colleagues in Cayman will take that receivership. We've got people in every you know major jurisdiction, I can't remember the numbers now, but if it's Hong Kong, Singapore, Dubai, Cayman, BVI, you name it, we've got people there who can actually do the job. And that's that's been a huge part of what I've been doing for the last two years is finding out across the world where mm. the Grant Thornton centers of excellence are when it comes to blockchain and Web3 and digital assets, because we get all kinds of weird and wonderful, not just asset recovery related inquiries in and to be able to find a home for these things. Is, it's incredibly interesting to me, but also it's it's really good in terms of building out relationships and explaining to people what we do and learning about yeah, what they cool.
0: do. Do you have, I'm, I'm going to come on to something that we've sort of touched on together, but have there been any difficult recoveries, any any good stories, any good characters that you've you've come across?
1: Oh, gosh, I'd have to have a think about that. Um, well,
0: we can come back yeah, to it. Yeah, we yet. might
1: have to anonymize
0: some Yeah, of that. And I'm not enough. quite
1: sure if we talk about those stories, just how anonymous they'll actually yeah,
0: be. <laughs> I mean, there, was, there was something that we worked on together. I think it was an investment scam a little while ago, whereby... I think it was an inside job um, of an exchange that had been hacked by, mm. yeah, as I say, someone who worked there. And I think at that stage you sort of stepped in um, to help. Can you just tell people how you added value and what you did?
1: That that was, and there was a, a liquidation as okay. I recall. It was actually a liquidation. Uh, and with that one, we we didn't manage to help entirely in the end, I would say, but we we worked very well in it and brought all of the matters that needed to be brought to the attention of the liquidators, and um, so so we had uh, an insolvent case, which as you say appeared to have been an inside job when you actually did the blockchain analytics, um, and due to the movement of the funds in and out of the company rather than you know just out of the company.
0: Yeah, I remember I remember the the, the movement of funds. It was it was through some sort of like washing machine, and we had to get. Uh, an investigator who used some AI software to undo it all. So whenever there's sort of super smart criminals or, or super smart people who are able to dissipate funds, there's someone even smarter on the investigation side who can yeah. undo it all. And I remember it was sort of quite complex.
1: And that, and that was exactly the kind of thing that I was uh, talking about earlier, where the creditors were not happy with the progress that was being made. And, right. and the liquidator was relying quite heavily on the director as a source of information. And unfortunately, it hadn't managed to uplift the books and records of the company and do anything really independently. And... And I, I know that that case did progress to, to a relatively satisfactory conclusion, but I think it was very much because you brought us in and we were able to talk to the liquidator together and say, look, these are the issues and we really you need to address these issues because this isn't um, a bog standard liquidation. It's something that you really need to give some thought to.
0: Yeah. No, I, I remember it being... Um, uh a really interesting one purely because the movement of assets was tough. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember calling you, you came in and grabbed the ball by the horns and got sorted. So <laughs> got that, was, that was that was that was great. <laughs> so sort of turning to the accessibility for victims. I mean there's a Financial Times article which I alluded to earlier. You're quoted as saying. So uh, hopefully you remember Gosh, saying this. Yeah. It says, The lawless world of crypto scams. Oh, sorry, the, the title of the article was called The Lawless World of Crypto Scams from the 19th of September 2022. You're quoted as saying. On the individual basis if your loss is relatively low there are very few options there's no there's no point spending three hundred thousand pounds to recover a hundred thousand pounds now i guess what that means is is if the amounts stolen or lost are quite low individual victims may struggle to fund a recovery but scammers profit if their victim pool is quite large so how can we better help victims where the price point is an issue to recover those funds
1: yeah, that's, it's, that's a really tough one and it's a good question and it's something that does come up. I mean, I, and no doubt you're exactly the same because of the number of articles that you've been writing and, and your profile in this sector. You must get the same as me several emails a week from individuals who, who are really in a bad way and they, they've lost life savings, they've borrowed heavily, they're too ashamed to tell their families about these losses that they suffered and they thought that they were onto a good thing. And I think, and I know this is not the question, but it's really important to point out that these people could be you and me. These are not just idiots sitting at home saying "take my money," you know, clicking yeah, on Facebook links. We I've seen really, really sophisticated, intelligent people working in this space who have been victim to crime, and and it is really heartbreaking when they come to us and we we do what we can. And a lot of the work that I do is on a risk basis, a the mm. no win no fee, but on, unfortunately. I have to keep the lights on and I have to pay my team. (laughs) And, and much as I would like to be able to do the pro bono side of things, it can't be all of that. So, so the way, and I, I don't believe certainly yet there's any kind of recourse for victims and, and obviously, yeah, it's, not a good idea to invest in a completely unregulated space where there are no protections for you at all. Whatsoever. And why I have I've... a
0: disclaimer at the end of each of these. So yeah.
1: might... <laughs> <laughs> there will be no investment advice provided. In yeah, the yeah, exactly. Um, but it, And it's not a good idea. And there are no protections. And there are plenty of other things that people who invest in digital assets jump to do because it's easy you can do it on your phone it's just a few clicks yeah. of a button um whereas they would never touch anything in in the more traditional investment space yeah. um and, and that's unfortunate. Um, the, the things that we've looked at doing through the blockchain analytics, you can see the movement of funds. You can see if you can identify whether there are group claims available. Yeah, They're extremely difficult to get off the ground. Um, I, I think there are one or two potential group claims floating around, Um, uh, but they can be really, really tough. But that can help defray the costs um, across the group. There are other cases I've seen where the loss might be relatively low and they want to look at funding. Um, In my experience, and I've done a lot of work with litigation funders over the last eight or 10 years, funders are interested, there's a limited number of litigation funders they are entering the market but as always, they've got a price point. Litigation funders look at, on average, three times return. They look at 10 times their investment for coverage before they'll invest, so.
0: so if it's 100,000 pounds lost, it's, gonna, it's just they're not interested.
1: They're not gonna, you know, it could take that to even get the funding agreement in place and yeah. terms and conditions. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is, it's it's a real shame. And, and I do think the solution to it is, it's either legal, you know, producing some kind of gateway, which isn't the right word to use, but some kind of form of recourse for them or regulation. Um, because it's something that... And, and the public sector can't deal with it either, because you talk about the, the fraudsters, um, they only need buy-in from a 1,000 or 10,000 victims to make it worth their while, and then they just turn over and open up the next scam and the next scam and That's the next it. scam. But they're entirely global. So if they're looking for 10,000 victims, they don't need them all to be from England. They don't need to come to the attention of the authorities here mm. or in any other jurisdiction because they can just turn it over and turn it over and turn it over. And, and it's global, which means public sector doesn't have a chance, private sector doesn't have a chance because all of these are international, um, you know, and and it's just unfortunate. So regulation, I think, is going to have to be the way. And education, obviously.
0: I think, yeah, to, to education definitely to sort of stop people falling victim to it. But of course, yeah. as you said at the outset, people do because there are sophisticated scams. Yeah, I think as a price point... As, and I I, I preface this by saying that I think we're still pretty early on in terms of assisting victims and and how that looks. But I think certainly from the point of view of lawyers, once um, this ability to recover becomes Uh, sort of uh, more mechanical Mm. costs will come down because it's the same formula over and over again getting uh, a disclosure orders getting a proprietary injunctions getting worldwide freezers so the only real biting point in cost then becomes where have the funds gone and how do we deal with the people who end up with the funds yeah I suppose the price point also depends upon the actual victim some people um, who I've dealt with keep their story sort of very neat and tidy and we don't have to do too much uh, preparation of evidence. And some people have a longer story or or, or can't remember it's so one well and that increases fees. So I think from a legal perspective, once we're in a position whereby we can sort of churn out these applications, the price point will, will come down.
1: It will, but when you get over to the the international side, if you, if you haven't managed to freeze something um, and you can't negotiate a settlement using that freezing order and you're getting me in on the asset recovery side, then you could be going anywhere in the world. Well, that's it. There's
0: so many unknowns because yeah. when you get to the point where a victim has fallen, uh, there is a victim and they've fallen, uh, you know, victim to some sort of scam, um, there is a certain amount uh, of work that lawyers can do where we can price it. But after that, I mean, it could go in any different direction. Mm-hmm. You might get default judgment against someone or you might get someone who actually wants to fight it. So it's a, it's a really, really difficult uh, issue, this price point. And uh, I think as... As the market um, progresses, um, it'll be sorted out. I'm not sure I know the answer to this as of yet.
1: No, and and well, yeah, it's easy for me to say regulation, education. On the education side, there there are some you know little rays of hope. I don't know if you saw the the updated Chainalysis' annual crime report, and and they said that you know investment scams have gone way down, and it's not just due to the value of digital assets having collapsed in the last six months, but that they think that investors are a little bit wiser. They're aware that a lot of these could be scams. Hmm. They, they don't necessarily have the sophistication to check the white paper and check if all of the terms have been audited and yeah, all of yeah. those kinds of things. But they are becoming more sophisticated. The other thing as well, I suppose, is that people now don't have the extra funds to be investing. And, and that might cause things to slow down a little bit as well.
0: That's true. I would say, though, just to sort of summarize, though, that we have successfully frozen stuff between yeah. us, Carmel mm-hmm. and I, and there have been recoveries and lots of them,
1: and at low price points as well. Yeah. you know, um, the, the the we will always have a look and see if there's something that we can do, and you know, whoever any any email that we get or anything like that, you know, if we can help, we will, and we'll always have a look, and and if there's something that we can do together, particularly if there are funds in the wallet, that's something we can turn around quite quickly.
0: Yeah, it it, it can become quite sort of easy, whereby um, you know, it, say it's hundred thousand pounds. And I get a report um, and Carmel tells me that it's gone one hop to an exchange and it's all sitting there. That's you way more it. affordable. You, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's low hanging fruit. You've got to do it. Whilst you know, it may be that there's millions of, of pounds or dollars or whatever that's been uh, transferred out and it's gone to many different exchanges or or crypto providers and they're in places that um, are less friendly to this jurisdiction. So you know, it's it's. I suppose in summary, it's a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't turn anything um, down unless it's sort of really not going to work. Although someone called me. Uh, last year to see if they could get back their 100 pounds of flocky, you know, um, wasn't able to do it for them no. just because of the price point, I think, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so I think sort of moving on. Um, so what are the biggest challenges? And I, sp- I suppose we've sort of covered this now, haven't we? What are the biggest challenges in recovering crypto assets? So outside of pr- uh, price points, what else are, are some of the issues? Well,
1: It all ties into the same thing. Jurisdiction is another one. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we've you know the it's a challenge but it's also something that i think we've done a lot of work to to overcome the the challenge is it's probably more your problem than mine to be mm, honest with is, you yeah. it's where is the victim located we we have people contacting us from literally you know all all over the world who who have had you know <clears throat> they've lost digital assets and And, you know, we have people all over the world who are looking to enforce judgments. That's a lot easier. And that's kind of, you know, it tends to be the more sophisticated end of the spectrum. But Mm -hmm. when you're talking about people who have lost assets due to a romance scam or Mm -hmm. an investment scam or something like that, it's is there any ability to have some kind of nexus of the English court or another? I mean, you know, the Singaporean court is doing amazing work. There's really good stuff going on in BVI in the US. So there are plenty of jurisdictions who are very much alive. But you know, I'm I'm very keen on the English court because the judgments have just been fantastic, and it's a really progressive attitude towards this type of work that we're doing. I'm I'm finding here. So getting on the jurisdiction side, from my perspective, is not so much of a problem on the enforcement side, because we can go anywhere, we can enforce anywhere. And the yeah. jurisdictions that tend to come up are jurisdictions like Cayman, like Seychelles, that we're already very comfortable with anyway.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I think on jurisdiction, I mean, a lot of those jurisdictions are, are where the exchanges are. Yeah. So we have, you know, normally if exchange has a dealing in, in the UK in some capacity, then you're able to get disclosure orders against them. But in a lot of times, the, the people who ended up with the funds, um, who when you trace along the blockchain, they end up at, at certain individuals' accounts. You don't know who they are. Mm. And then once you get disclosure orders, you find out who they are. We've made recoveries from people in uh, Cyprus, Nigeria, Israel, Russia. So in that respect, it doesn't really matter. I, I think that the starting point really is, is where is the victim and yeah. can they fall into the jurisdiction?
1: Exactly. And um, the other things that funding, we've already touched on, yep. funding, where funders are interested but it's how, how do you get that case off the ground? Um, and from my perspective, you know, a blockchain analytics report doesn't cost very much. But crypto is, it's a different space to the the rest of what my team would be used to. If we get a normal, a normal case in, as because you know, what <laughs> we do is abnormal. Yeah. Yeah. But if we we get a, a standard case in and someone says, well, there's been some kind of fraud. This is the guy who took it. We reckon he's got a property in Portugal. We, yeah. we can do uh, corporate intelligence and a degree of due diligence and be comfortable that there is, Doesn't have to be a direct route to recovery at all. It can be very indirect. There can be trusts in the way. Hmm. But with this space, It's person's unknown, isn't it? So there's that first stage before you can get to the point where you can do your due diligence and get that gut feeling. So so funding is a thing and also dealing with the expectations uh, of the victims and the clients. And, you know, they they very rightly want to do everything that they can to get back their life savings. I'd be exactly the same. So they can very, you know, very rightly, they're very frustrated very rightly they well maybe not very rightly you know we're talking about this yesterday contacting eight or nine different solicitors it's not going to get you very far you know um and and i i absolutely think yeah you would call in everyone you can to help but at the same time sooner or later you have to just pick a lane and go for it you know um
0: well it's funny right because people and i think that's right people want to you've got to manage expectations of, of clients but sometimes they can be quite funny. There was a case recently that I did whereby the guy obviously wanted his funds back, mm-hmm. but he was also, to some extent, hell-bent on revenge and finding out the people who who defrauded him. Yeah. And mine and Carmel's game, on the most part, is not actually worrying about who defrauded the individual or the victim, but tracing the funds along the blockchain and getting them back from the parties who end up with them. Yeah. Um, so I would definitely say at this point that uh, litigating out of revenge is definitely not something that people should.
1: Unless you're an ultra high net worth individual, in which case, give us a call because
0: that's totally fine. Well, he was he was a, he was a really interesting guy because um, he he wanted to find out who defrauded him, and this yeah. is just to, to tell a story. And my advice to him was you know maybe put your phone down stop messaging these people um because it's actually quite emotionally draining and yes, he was getting yeah. quite invested and you know every two weeks a new a new character would pop up hi i'm john from this investment platform the last guy got sacked and i'm here to take over your account um but you need to pay a withholding tax fee as you always do with mm-hmm. these things um and he provided a little bit more information so he provided a, uh, another wallet address and then another character mm-hmm. a- appeared, and the client just continually wanted to just try and extract information, and it got to a point where we were actually able to identify, on the most part, who the wrongdoer was. Mm-hmm. So actually, him being hell bent on revenge helped the case massively. Yeah. So it's just it's, it's interesting that I mean I say don't litigate on revenge, and it, it sort of eat my own words. That did happen at that point, but um, I think going back to your point, client expectations and managing our own clients. Um, is is absolutely key in all of this and making sure that the focus is on recovering the assets rather than anything else. I,
1: I think you've made some really, really interesting points there. Yeah, there's a difference between restitution and justice. Mm-hmm. and And you and I are very much focused on the restitution side. So there's always a cost-benefit expectations as well in terms of timing what we do a lot of it is very quick what you do is very quick because yeah. the applications are urgent but what i do takes time when it comes to the asset recovery side of things and it can take longer and and this idea that it will happen instantly is is just not true and and the other thing is i'm i'm not and never have been in the business of selling the moon on a stick you know <laughs> it is very much this is what it is. This is what it's going to cost initially, but there is no guarantee. You know, we'll do the best we can, but yeah. there's no guarantee that we're going to get it back for you. And the idea that if you pay X amount, then you'll get Y amount is it's just not it's just not as certain as that.
0: But that's the same with any asset that you deal with, right?
1: Oh, it absolutely is the same. I I think the difference for me is that I, I get so many more. I, I can't even tell you how many more direct approaches from victims, whereas in previous lives dealing with corruption cases or mm. dealing with tax fraud cases, it was very much dealing with a, a legal professional. And, you know, and, and I normally like to have the law talking guys between me and the <laughs> ultimate client, um, where expectations don't have to be managed quite as carefully. Yeah, that's, already that's my job where, in the end, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I get it. So just to sort of finish this off, I, I asked um, Carmel if I could ask her some more abstract questions and she's kindly agreed to them. So um, we're sort of going to go slightly uh, more abstract. So if you ran a crypto exchange, what one thing would you like to do that others aren't?
1: Well, I I was going to, you know, people are very critical of the exchanges and and I'm not so critical. I, I You know, we've seen... I guess because I wasn't there at the very beginning when certain exchanges were saying we're not anywhere, and it's kind of sure, you're yeah. definitely not decentralized. You can you're not.
0: <laughs> you're registered in a yeah. jurisdiction, like we can see that exactly. Nice try.
1: So so I didn't have that those difficult teething days, and and my my exchanges with exchanges, I was you know, to choose my words really poorly, <laughs> have been more positive because as I say, we we haven't yet and it will come um, had situations where we're adverse and um, they've been building out their legal teams and their compliance and everything like that. Um, that's not necessarily to engage with us. I think it's to be able to further fend us off and potentially fend regulation off to a degree. But but having been to the blockchain and the Web3 conferences and all of those kinds of things, hmm. the people in the industry are crying out for regulation. They're crying out for some kind of guidance. Going back to your question, so so I'm saying, yeah, I think it's about collaboration rather than antagonism with the exchanges. Yeah. But one thing I would do is look at cybersecurity. Um, and you know, I've spoken to some exchanges and say we've we've never been hacked. And it's kind of I mean, that's just not true.
0: Yeah, well, he's not <laughs> made it out in the press yet.
1: Yeah, and and some some have not been, and they have entirely isolated systems and all of that kind of thing. But any system where there are humans involved is vulnerable. And and I think that um exchanges and protocols and you know wallet providers all need to to look in their own backyards and look at cybersecurity and look at the the vulnerabilities that they have because that's that's what's increasing now we've seen ransomware hacks have been you know increasing massively hacks on bridges and hacks on exchanges and hacks and all of those kinds of things are increasing massively and mm. they just need to be a little bit more careful on that side so if I yes yeah, so if I ran a crypto exchange then I would be getting some of my cyber security colleagues in to have a proper audit of it um,
0: and that's that's probably very sensible I mean I know that there's I whether people in, in exchanges are actually doing this or not, but I know that there's instances where there's sort of like outward marketing. So Binance come out and said that they're gonna train law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And a little while Coinbase said that they'd guarantee a certain amount of, of pounds in people's accounts. Mm-hmm. I guess that sort of falls into just general confidence in their services, yeah. And I suppose, I, I guess, what you're saying is, is you'd come at it from a cybersecurity perspective to make sure that people feel comfortable that they're not going to get hacked. Of course, it's not going to be 100, percent right? Oh, but it's not going to be
1: 100, percent but you can you can make yourself less attractive than the next exchange, you know. Um, yeah. If they're all sitting in a row in Seychelles or wherever, <laughs> you can you can make yourself a less attractive target. You can you know you can institute policies. You can do a proper health check, and yeah. and also you can respond appropriately. And again, you know, I mentioned it not on the hoof if there is a breach. Um, yeah. and, and stand a chance of getting your assets back. Obviously, a lot of these hacks, the really high profile ones work really well because the thief tends to return the
0: funds they, less why a couple why of they million. Do I don't understand this. They hack it, and they, is it to make you a do, point? Of course you understand this. It's
1: because we're all watching it. We all, we're all we <laughs> yeah. all watching the wallet where the funds have been moved to. I
0: suppose you're right. It's all we publicly available. We
1: can see what's going on. They're completely under scrutiny and they think, right, well, I'll, I'll give it back less a couple of million if they promise to leave me alone. Yeah,
0: I think you're it's right. It's a good there.
1: tactic, yeah.
0: So, and last question here, but what, uh, wh- where is this industry heading, and what are your five and ten year predictions for mm. the space?
1: Oh, five years is too much of a horizon, never mind ten years. Um,
0: <laughs> let's just do one then. Which one would you prefer, five or ten? Well, well doesn't it, does it matter, okay, I'm just not really. you
1: know, <laughs> all of this is going to come true within yeah, the next five years, of course. Years. Yeah, I think, um, the you know, having had a think about this and 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 a quick Google, everyone talks about it, it's mainstream. Mm. You know, it's going to be mainstream. I some some of my Indeed competitors talk about the replacement of fiat currency with digital, and I I mean, cash is still sloshing around a little bit. You know, even with a pandemic in which mm-hmm. you know, it, so so I don't think there's going to be some kind of replacement. I do think that things the the kind of digital assets that we you know the the um, Bitcoin, the ETH, all of that. Kind of thing is going to be bog standard. It's going to be just another asset in the kind of cases that I'm seeing, and I hope so. And there may well have been other types of currency that supersede, um, but maybe kind of on a longer horizon. I would hope that NFTs are finally taken seriously and <laughs> and that they're actual because this is something again. People are very dismissive of NFTs, and I think that they have really good use cases that are not yet being seen. So I yeah. think that we'll see that in in day to day use. There's been a seismic shift, and I think that will continue. Um, the challenges are again going to be cybersecurity, absolutely, because as we move more and more into that space, the, the risks and uh, are just going to be higher and higher. And, and regulation. And you know, I, I've talked before about how blockchain technology should technically be doing us out of a job because they should. You know, it's a much more secure environment for transacting, in. it's far less prone to to fraud and corruption and all of those kinds of things. If you look at chain of supplies on blockchain and everything like that. But having said that. Wherever there's money, there are fraudsters. Wherever there's money being made, there are fraudsters. And we'll be we'll be definitely kept in business. So regulatory stuff will have moved on a huge amount, I would hope. Yep. It won't be perfect. It won't be uniform. It will be different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and will struggle. Exactly the same as it is in the fiat world. Cyber security is going to be huge. And you and I are going to be very, very busy because wherever there's money to be made, someone's finding an angle.
0: Or we won't have a job anymore because they'll it'll all have been, you know, they've we'd have been replaced.
1: And what a positive note. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, brilliant.
0: All right, well, thanks very much, Karma. Thanks for coming in, appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. This podcast does not contain any financial or legal advice, and you should not seek to rely on it as such. Opinions are the individual's own. This podcast was produced and edited by Joe Hawkins. production support by Jake Key, and music by Luke Carey.